From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Information Systems Agency says its first ever other transaction authority will let it avoid spending more than $300 million. DISA Executive Deputy Director Christopher Barnhart says the cost avoidance is because the agency won't have to expand the connections between DISA networks and the public Internet. Federal News Network reports the deal is with Bylight Professional IT Services for cloud-based Internet isolation. The director of the Census Bureau will step down tomorrow at the end of the Trump administration. Stephen Dillingham's term was scheduled to run through the end of this year. He's taken criticism in the last few days for potential influence from the Trump White House over citizenship information. Health and Human Services veteran Oki Mack is the agency's new chief artificial intelligence officer. HHS CIO Perrin Ashmore says Mack will lead the agency's implementation of the recent executive order on AI. NextGov reports Mack's been a senior advisor to the HHS CIO and chief technology officer of the agency's acquisition shop. President-elect Biden's stimulus proposal includes more than $10 billion for IT and cyber initiatives. The plan would also, quote, expand and improve the Technology Modernization Fund. Suzette Kent is board member at, LS, at the LSU Foundation and Hancock and & Whitney. She's former federal chief information officer. Suzette, welcome. It's great to see you. I imagine you're tremendously excited about this potential infusion of cash for the TMF. What do you see as the prospects if the money's approved, what do you see the prospects uh, for going toward? Uh, well, first, Francis, thank you for having me. And uh, hearing $10 billion is absolutely thrilling. But I'm cautiously optimistic, right? We've heard the, the billions before, but I hope many of the lessons from the pandemic and others um, situations will have Congress embrace that request. And the board, because billions have been proposed at other point in times, has thought about both OMB and GSA around how to scale the board and how to operate um, with larger dollars, quicker pace, but keep some of those disciplines in place. So there is a plan and I would love to see the team have to execute it um, and see that type of funding applied to the TMF because that'll let them expand beyond just things that agencies can do themselves to some of those things uh, that we need to do for the government as an enterprise, such as cybersecurity, shared services, and some of the collaboration type of activities that um, we kind of had to put together very quickly during the pandemic, but those can be put in place uh, to operate going forward. What are the potential bottlenecks? Because when you and I have spoke, spoken about the TMF before, um, the, the issue, was, we were talking about millions of dollars, you know, three-figure millions, 200 million and so on. Yep. This is like 40X that. What's yep. the capacity level that the board is ready to undertake? And then what is the capacity level at the agencies when these things get approved? Well, the board would absolutely have to be scaled, right? It is, it's a substantial amount of work with a small but diverse board that exists now across multiple agencies and multiple disciplines. To, to, to take on that throughput, it would need to be expanded, but keep that, that great mix. Um, also the payback mechanisms and the 
oversight would have to be streamlined and automated in some ways so that that can move more quickly. Part of the reason it's been successful was because of that oversight and interaction from the board. Um, but that was done with a lot of people processes and one-on-one -on -one meetings and operating at this volume, you would need to be able to not only expand the individuals involved, but um, move through those checkpoints and reporting processes much more quickly, both with the board and at the individual agencies. Is there a place to streamline the process or is the process good as it is, you just need to be able to do it 20X or 40X, Suzette? Um, the process is solid. You need to be able to do it 20 or 40X, but there are some components, like I said, the um, payback, how, how payback is looked at, um, the reporting utilities that could use some uh, tool support themselves um, as well as the information flow between the support teams that actually help the project team from day to day, um, that has to be scaled in, in order to facilitate uh, the types of, of toll gates and um, checkpoints that are in place. Regarding the expansion of the board, I don't expect you to name particular people, although you're welcome to nominate them if you'd like to, but what's the type of person that should be on the board is the comp is the uh, composition of the board the skill sets and and experiences and portfolios of the people on the board now um, what we want to keep or is there room at the table for a different type of person a different type of view francis there's room at the table for for many types of views um, i mentioned discipline the, the various disciplines a couple of things are important, broad spectrum from multiple agencies and broad spectrum of the disciplines. And when I say that, that means true hands-on technologists, that means operational experts, that means procurement experts, that's um, representatives from our financial teams. That combination of expertise, uh, project management depth, that combination is what has helped reduce the risks of, of projects and provide guidance to the teams to ensure that we are on track or, or that initiatives happen you know, in the way to deliver the expected results. So broad representation um, across the various agencies, but most important perspectives from those different disciplines. I know there's a lot of talent out there. It took a lot of time. And so that's also the, I think, the give and take and a little bit of the exchange and the need to expand the board um, so that the proper amount of time can be dedicated, but that that is not a detriment to the agencies that are providing individuals to serve on the board. Speaking of talent, you took a little bit of a different talent approach to recruiting chief information officers uh, during your tenure as federal CIO. How do you think the Dana Deasy's of the world, the Stuart McGuigan's of the world and others have changed the metric for this administration and, uh, and, and administrations after the Biden administration for choosing CIOs, Suzette? Uh, Francis, that is a question I'm thrilled to answer. I, I think private sector CIOs that have had uh, a, a background of success it is a phenomenal statement. You know, the individuals you mentioned, you know, go on to, you know, Brian Cody, Jen Gerfair, Rajiv Mathur, um, individuals who came from private sector to serve, 
bring an immense amount of experience in working with diverse populations. They know how to deliver results quarter after quarter. They're familiar with many of the technology tools and vendors. And I think what we saw was that they integrated quickly and they were able to do impressive things. And I hope we see that exact same pattern in the new politically appointed CIOs who will be joining the Biden administration, that they'll continue to, to raise the bar and stand on the shoulders of you know, what, what has been delivered with this group of CIOs. And um, you know, that, that the passion and opportunity to, to serve American citizens is a great reward for people who have been successful in the private sector. Suzette Kent, thanks very much. It's great to have you back. Thank you, sir. Up next, the old problems facing the new team. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how to de-risk the high-risk list. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The actual official change of presidential power will be complete as of noon tomorrow, but the work of tracking and fixing the government's toughest problems does not stop. Chris Mim is Managing Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Chris, it's great to see you again. I'll forgive you if you're biased toward the high-risk list, but what do you think the incoming administration uh, should pay attention to the most to get a grip of where the government is as of January 20th noon when they take office? Well, you're right. The high-risk list, Francis, and I would put on there also the duplication, overlap, and fragmentation. But I mean, it, the, it, seriously though, I, I think there's a couple of things right out of the box that the, the new administration needs to be focused on. And, and one of those is to, to make sure that there's a, a successful and seamless um, handoff on some of the major management issues that are being confronted. That, and that is that, you know, we have seen in the past that where you get management breakdowns is when we lose momentum across political leadership. Now, obviously the new team has to come in and has to make sure that they're comfortable with the direction that we're going. But at the end of the day, we wanna make sure that, that on those projects that should move forward, that the momentum is maintained. The second thing that's very important, I think, is that the both the, the, the quality of the of the sub cabinet picks and the speed in which they are put in place will will be important. And the extent to which out of the box that they can develop good working relationships with the career civil service in the past. Again, where we have seen problems, it's said right at the outset where those good relationships have not taken place and that if there's a breakdown there that can really reverberate throughout. And then third, the extent to which right away that the administration, be, the new administration begins to take action on already the known risks, whether it be the cybersecurity hack that we've recently had, or obviously the COVID ro uh, response and the vaccine rollout, um, do they get on top of that right out of the box? Those are, are three things that just kind of immediately that they need to be focused on. About your second point, Chris, there are two elements to that that I think are encouraging for those of us that pay attention to the way the federal government manages itself and people manage the enterprise. One is the fact that Max Dyer was on this program not too long ago, the Partnership Public Service, and talking about the emphasis that he sees the Biden team putting on the presidential appointees that don't require Senate confirmation. That's one, because theoretically you can get those people into place faster. And the other piece is you have a whole lot of people coming in that have experience with the executive branch from the Obama administration. Are those two positives in your view? 
Yes, I would absolutely agree with Max on that. Those are both very healthy developments. Is that the, obviously, those political appointees at the sub-cabinet level is where a lot of the day-to-day -day work and certainly the management of federal programs gets gets done. And making sure that you've got good people in there um, that, that know the workings of government, in, in addition to just, just knowing a policy area, but know actually project management and how things get done is vitally important. Um, and then the, 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 the other point as well is also very important. I fixate with you and your colleagues at GAO on the high-risk list, so cheers to you for mentioning the duplication, fragmentation, and overlap work, too. There's a lot of stuff in on that list, isn't there, that the executive branch can take on its own, uh, uh, can take on on its own without relying on Congress, right, Chris? Absolutely. There's, uh, you know, the, the, the next high-risk list will be coming out in, in early February, and then the duplication overlap work will be coming out uh, later in the, the spring. Um, there, there are issues in there that are, are within the, the congressional purview, and, and we do highlight those. But an awful lot of that, in fact, the majority of that are things that agencies can do um, working with Congress, keeping them inf informed, but they're, they're within the agency purview on that. One other aspect on this that's important is that each year the Controller General sends a letter to the heads of each of the agencies with the priority open recommendations that we that they that are at that agency um, we're going to be doing that again this spring any given agency can have dozens or in some cases if it's a large agency even hundreds of open recommendations we found that you know that that hel helping them focus on what are those that are the, the greatest priority for them that is the greatest risk in terms of health and safety and well-being for the American citizens or those where cost is vulnerable um, that helps them really target and focus their efforts and that'll again be coming out later this spring. How do you assess those though when there are so many different dynamics at play with the various risks and 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 open recommendations that an agency's up against Chris? Yeah, one the the the, the big thing is is that we, you know, we Part of what we use is that, you know, what are those types of issues where um, intervention at the very highest part of the of the organization that is at the secretarial or administrator level would be most helpful in terms of and be catalytic to actually getting action. And so it's uh, a, a lot of our recommendations, they just take time and that uh, um, and they're being worked down at a program or operational level. And that's fine. You know, we, we keep focused on those and keep working with the career staff on that. But we also realize that there's a set of recommendations where either the problem is huge or such that, that that they've stalled and that there really is a need for the for the head of the agency to intervene so that she or he can can kind of get it going. That's that's really what we focus those priority recommendations on. We have a minute or less left, Chris, from either a professional or personal perspective. What would you watch moving forward? Maybe that well, we talk about the first hundred days of a new administration all the time. What would you watch from a management perspective in the first hundred days to see what direction you think the new administration is going? I think there are two things that I'm going to be looking at is that first, to the extent to which the the the, the Biden administration is understanding or seeking to understand the, the capacities, the management capacities that they have within each of these agencies is that, you know, they're coming in, obviously, with a very ambitious agenda. All new incoming administrations do. We have enormous challenges in this country. They need to make sure that the, within individual agencies, there's the capacity, the management capacity to execute on that, that they have the skills, the right people, the IT, the, you know, the the financial management in place in order to do that. Um, likewise, many 
of their issues are cross-cutting in nature. They need to make sure that they have the cross-cutting governance strategies and, and, and mechanisms, institutional mechanisms in place. And then this, the third thing we're going to be looking at or that I would be most interested in is to make sure as they roll out their agenda that there's a good project management behind it. That is that goals are being set, milestones, targets, follow-up, corrective action plans when things aren't being done. That's what's so vital in, in many of these management areas. The, the, the breakdown is the failure of implementation. And I'm, I'm hopeful that the, the incoming administration will see that and, and understand that the success of any of their policy agenda is completely dependent on sound management and good governance. Chris Mim, you're always terrific. Thanks for coming on. My great pleasure, sir. Take care, Francis. Up next, a spot check for the defense industrial base. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's solid and what isn't in the Pentagon's supply chain? Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. Coronavirus hotspots in the defense industrial base are just one of the problems the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment has detailed in its new industrial capabilities report to Congress. The others are not as obvious as COVID-19. Jerry McGinn is executive director of the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. He's former, former uh, principal deputy director of the Office of Manufacturing and Industrial Base Policy. Jerry, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I imagine you've navigated and even contributed to writing a number of these things over the years. I confess, I sat down and looked at all 180 some pages of this with no executive summary, where did you start when you looked at this latest edition of this, Jerry? Great. Well, it's great to see you, Francis, and great to be back on. Yeah, I started with, I mean, I, as you mentioned, I've, uh, I've written, uh, it played an intimate role in drafting several of these uh, when I was in government, um, and I continue to follow them. So I looked at what was different, and what was different is the, the length is quite, a, is quite longer than it has been. And there were two areas that were, were um, uh, certainly stood out to me. One was the, the forward, which was essentially a strategy um, paper that outlined um, uh, Jeb Nadoner, who's the current DASD for industrial policy, his view and Ellen Lord's view of how to you know, fix the industrial base. And the second part was they added a new section, which was around emerging and um, critical technologies, such as hypersonics and so on. Look at industrial base of those, those parts. So that's what I saw as new. Was this longer, you kind of get to, the, to my question in the last segment there, last part of your answer there, Jerry, but I wonder, was it longer in the way that I used to pad my papers in college to try to get to a certain number of pages, or was it longer because there was more meat to put in this time because of what's been going on in the industrial base? No, I, I think you know, they they wanted to um, emphasize uh, new areas. You know, bringing the emerging technology, critical technologies is, is a new ad. And they also spent a good amount of time talking about the tools that can address industrial base um, weaknesses. So I think they expanded a bit. And, um, you know, the, the addition of the, the, the white paper the front was what led to it. But I was struck by the, the actual the themes of the report were, were very similar to those um, of the past um, almost decade now, which are that the industrial base is doing all right. Um, companies are generally profitable. Uh, we have what we need to have the, the greatest military in, in the world. 
But there are some significant weaknesses, some, some structural challenges that need to be addressed. So that that uh, continuity struck me as well. What, given that, and, and given that COVID's not the only overlay on everything we talk about on this program, the transition also is dealing with those significant challenges. What would you expect to see if you're an industry that uh, the Biden administration will take on to try to address those challenges, Jerry? Yeah, I think I think you will see a lot of continuity because there actually is a, a very strong bipartisan consensus about some of the challenges facing industrial base. The, the biggest one being the uh, places where we are in uh, single source or sole source positions with uh, companies based in China, you know, and that, that is, you know, um, rare earths and microelectronics and uh, some specialty chemicals. And there's um, there's big consensus to rebuild that and reshore that. And there's been actually progress made. And also in the area of build, rebuilding some manufacturing skills. Uh, th so I think you'll see a lot of continuity there. Priorities might be different, um, uh, but uh, I think you'll see more continuity than difference. So that concept of reshoring is interesting to me because I wonder if, if there is consensus both in government and in industry about what that means. Does that mean those industries and that, that manufacturing comes back to the United States or does it go to allies that we can count on but maybe not on our own shores? What does that look, or maybe some all of the above, what does that look like in your view? No, I think that that is the great question. I think that is the fundamental question facing the incoming administration is how do you what does reshoring look like? Because there are those that argue that reshoring means bringing all domestic industrial capacity, all industrial capacity, manufacturing capacity to the U.S. So by America approach. There are those that argue that no, no, um, we need to focus on where we are uh, upside down with China and those kind of positions do those first. And then there are those that argue that we should partner with allies as well. I would argue that you know, Buy America is not the right approach and that we need to focus on reshoring first where we're uh, and getting out of the, the China business in those areas where we have those uh, structural problems. Second, I, I would then pr pick your battles and, and prioritize. And there it's, it's going to be up to the incoming team. And I think microelectronics is going to be one. And I think those important to focus on those things. And then the, the but. Uh, using all the tools is critical. I mean, there's the Defense Production Act Title III, the Industrial Base uh, Analysis and Sustainment Program, man Manufacturing Technology, Public-Private Partnerships. We need to do more of that. Um, and those programs prior to COVID were chronically underfunded. Jerry McGinn, thanks as always. Great to have you on the program. Great, great to see you, Francis. Don't forget, if you missed an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every show by signing up for a program guide, you just text GovMatters to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.